I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Paul Shari, is the Executive Vice President and Director of Studies at the Center for a New American Security, an independent, bipartisan, nonprofit organization that develops strong, pragmatic, and principled national security and defense policies. An expert in emerging weapons technologies, he led working groups at the U.S. Department of Defense to establish policies on autonomous weapon systems, as well as intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance programs. His prior experiences in the military include multiple deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan, serving as a special operations reconnaissance team leader. Shari has published articles in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, among other prominent print media, and has appeared on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NPR, and the BBC. He has testified before the House and Senate Armed Services Committee and has presented at the United Nations, NATO, the Pentagon, the CIA, and other national security venues. He holds a PhD in war studies from King's College London and an MA in political economy and public policy and a BS in physics from Washington University in St. Louis. His first book, Army of None, Autonomous Weapons and the Future of War, won the 2019 Colby Award, was named one of Bill Gates' top five books of 2018 and by The Economist as one of the top five books to understand modern warfare. In 2023, Time Magazine named him as one of the 100 most influential people in AI. His most recent book entitled Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence is the subject of today's interview. So Paul, welcome to Delving In. Thank you, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. That's quite an impressive resume you've got there. (laughs) (laughs) That's very kind, thank you. I try to stay busy. So before we get into the details, please tell us how you developed an interest in this subject and your mission to bring this information to a general audience. We've seen some really impressive things underway in artificial intelligence over the last decade, since really 2012, when the deep learning revolution kicked off. And I had been working on what at the time the military had talked about as autonomy, which is not exactly the same as AI, but it's it's closely related, and looking at drones, robotic systems, prior to that in the Pentagon, maybe it was back as early as like 2009, I'd work on a lot of those issues. And so as the AI technology began to really rapidly advance, maybe seven, eight years ago, when this kind of all kicked off, it just was a topic of interest to me and one where I realized here in Washington, where I work, people weren't really tracking this. Like people in the policy world weren't understanding what was happening in the technology space, which was this just absolutely seismic shift. And so that led me to lean into this technology, um, both in my first book, Army of None, and then my second book, Four Battlegrounds, to try to understand how is artificial intelligence changing global power? And I'm really excited to be able to share this book with people. came out earlier this year. And certainly now with the, the chat GPT moment that we're in, I think people really around the world are seeing the significance of AI. Yeah, of course, it's not as cataclysmically rapid uh, a thing as, let's say, the breaking of a dam that we've heard about it. But still, it's happening so fast. And and there isn't that much information for the general public, just kind of dribs and drabs. So this is the first time I've seen uh, actual comprehensive treatment of it for a general audience. So thank you for that. Thank you. That's my goal, was to have a book that is accessible, that you don't need a PhD in computer science to read it, you don't need to be a programmer. It's aimed at the general audience to try to understand how is artificial intelligence changing our world? What will it mean for 
companies for countries to have an AI advantage? How do they compete in data and computer chips and the, the human talent that's needed behind this technology? And then what are the advantages to come from that? And in particular, the book comes at this kind of looking at the US-China competition in AI and really more broadly globally, um, which is definitely shaping the global order today. Yeah, and we'll definitely get into, I think, each of those areas uh, during this interview. So in the introduction to your book, you write, AI will save lives and increase efficiency and productivity. It's also being used as a weapon of repression and to gain military advantage. This book is about the darker side of AI. So let's unpack those three sentences, which I think get to the core of your book. The, the, the first sentence, how AI will save lives while also increasing efficiency and productivity, I think is well covered elsewhere and is really not the central theme of your book although I think it's good that you, you mention it. And those pertain to areas like medical diagnosis and streamlining of linguistic tasks. But, but the darker side you allude to is contained in the second sentence, the, the details of which I think comprise the rest of your, of your book. AI is being used, present tense, as a weapon of repression and to gain military advantage. So let's hear about the details of those two related but quite different uses of AI, starting with repression. And then along the way, we'll talk about the important differences of, about how, how AI is being used in autocratic countries like China, especially China, and democratic countries such as the European Union and the US, which are also quite different in terms of regulation, especially. Let's start with that, with the, the repressive part, and we'll get to the military part later. Yeah, absolutely. So China is pioneering this very troubling dystopian vision of using technology to surveil and repress its citizens. Over about half of the world's 1 billion surveillance cameras are in China, and they're increasingly using facial recognition, gate recognition, and other AI tools to monitor and track Chinese citizens to combine this data with other types of information, things that are tracking people's purchases, that are tracking their cell phone usage, to build together a network of information about what Chinese citizens are doing to crack down on dissidents, to repress Chinese Uyghurs, a minority population inside China that's, that's really viciously repressed by the Chinese Communist Party, and more broadly to track all of the citizens of China to monitor their behavior. I did several trips to China as part of the research of the book, and it's interesting, it was, it was really striking to me the level of surveillance inside the country. Um, it's one thing to read about 500 million surveillance cameras, but then to walk down the streets in Beijing and see cameras on every light pole at every intersection, halfway down the street, sometimes to the point of absurdity of seven or eight or nine or 10 cameras on a single light pole watching everyone. I went to Tiananmen Square, where protesters had you know, bravely stood against the Chinese Communist Party in 89 and been really horribly repressed. There were like a rough ballpark estimate, something like 200 cameras in the square. And one of the things I, I realized was that what China's trying to do is not just to monitor its citizens to do things like crack down on protesters, although we did see that happen when we saw protests last year from COVID and Chinese citizens expressing their frustration with the government about its COVID policies. But it's really to, from the standpoint of the Chinese Communist Party, to ensure that something like a massive protest in Tiananmen Square never even happens, that the protesters don't even make it to the square because the party has such visibility into what they're doing that it can crack down on them beforehand. And it's just a really troubling world to live in. And 
we're starting to see the export of those tools abroad. And I think it is deeply threatening to freedom around the world. The irony with Tiananmen Square, of course, is that China has totally censored any mention of Tiananmen Square in its internet. And you, you make the really important point in your book that there are actually two internets. There's what we think of as the internet, and then there's the internet just in China, which has what's called the Great Firewall. That preventing any, there's no history, it's been wiped from the record in, in their version of the internet. That's right. And the, the Chinese Communist Party has built this really impressive apparatus to control information inside China that consists of censorship, of not just censoring information about something like the Tiananmen massacre, but also actively censors that are engaged in social media and flagging things in comments in real time, pulling information down or posts that people make, but also then propaganda that the party floods the Chinese internet with its own vision of the world. And if you go back 20 years when China started to do this, a lot of people didn't believe it was possible. Bill Clinton had famously referred to what China was doing, trying to control the internet, as like nailing jello to the wall. There was an assumption at the time, I think during the, the heyday of the 90s and the dot-com boom and the information revolution, that information couldn't be contained, couldn't be controlled. And what we've seen is that it can be. And I think that lesson is one that we should take to heart when we look at what China is now doing, trying to take the same level of control that they have over information and apply that to the physical world and to the actual behavior of its citizens through things like a social credit system that give punishments and reward for citizens' behavior for trivial things, but not sorting your recycling. Part of the theory here, right, is if you can control people down to the level of sorting the recycling, you're certainly not going to be in a position where they can stand up and revolt against the government. And there's a lot of places where the system of control today is imperfect, it's incomplete. But when we look at what China's done over the last 20 years with the internet, they're persistent and they're going to keep at it and I think that we need to expect that they'll be able to, over time, solidify these mechanisms of control in ways that are very disturbing. So I'm going to make a, a gross uh, overgeneralization here for a second, but and I hope you forgive me for that. But in terms of cultural differences, I think of Chinese culture uh, and Asian, maybe Asian culture in general as being much more socially conforming than our culture. And so for them, maybe the, this level of social control and surveillance doesn't feel as unnatural, I wonder. And I wonder, I just wonder what, I haven't been to China, I wonder what it's like for the average citizen. And I'm wondering if the average citizen is, is able to talk to you or are they too scared to? Yeah, the answer is like some of both. I certainly, citizens are very clearly aware of the surveillance. It's omnipresent, it's in your face. The party wants you to know that you're being watched. That's the point. I think for many Chinese citizens, it's a, it's a fact of life. There's not a mechanism, even if they don't like it, there's not a mechanism for them to push back because if you get on the internet and you complain about something the government's doing, you're going to, quote, get, get called for tea with the police. The police ask you down to come to the station and bring you in for questioning. I have spoken with Chinese citizens who were in that position, and it certainly changed their behavior as a result. I spoke with citizens who told me privately in whispers that they were deeply troubled by the genocide that the Chinese Communist Party is carrying out against Uyghurs in Xinjiang. I also spoke to citizens who denied that any of that was happening, who bought what the party's telling them, that this is all fake news that's being spread by 
Western nations to try to make China look bad. And none of this is real. And the Uyghurs are terrorists, including by people that I think are, are, are good people. And it's hard to know how much people maybe believe that or they have to believe it because they don't have a good alternative. But I think the idea that Chinese citizens don't care about freedom, the lie that the Chinese Communist Party would like us all to believe, is so obviously untrue. Because if it was true, they wouldn't need all the censorship. They wouldn't need all this control. The idea that like, and there are clearly the cultural differences between different parts of the world, Asian countries and Scandinavian countries and the United States and others. And the U.S. is certainly on a far end in terms of the individualist kind of spectrum there. But the idea that like Chinese people don't want freedom, you can look right across the Taiwan Strait to Taiwan and see that's not true. People that are ethnically Chinese are, are in a thriving democracy in Taiwan. I think the reality of the party censorship it makes it clear that's just not the case. And we saw that really just recently with the COVID protests, which the government cracked down on very swiftly. So it's interesting, you have a, a, quite a difference between disinformation here in the States, where, which comes from many different directions, and it's a quite a big variety of disinformation and some truth also. Trying to tell the difference is difficult for a lot of people. But the difference in China is that this information is coming from a single source with, with a, a single purpose. That's right. And look, the social media environment here in the US or in other countries is not great. It's a mess. And there's lots of disinformation floating around and lots of kind of problematic narratives. I think that the key difference in China is that the lies are whatever the Chinese Communist Party wants them to be. And it, it can both be true that we have problems here in the United States that we need to clean up. And what China is doing is horrible and absolutely horrific. And the export of China's model of techno-authoritarianism is a threat to global freedom. And if we wait until the U.S. and other democratic nations have solved the problem of social media, we're going to be waiting forever while we're seeing this creeping spread of China's model in other parts of the world, in Southeast Asia, in Africa, South America, even in parts of Europe where Chinese surveillance technology is being used. And so I think it's really imperative that even while we're working to improve a lot of these issues of how we use digital technology to shore up freedom in democratic states, we're also pushing back against the way that authoritarian states are using the technology. Let me just quote from your book here, just to amplify what you're saying with your own words about the details of this. The consequences of ending up on a blacklist can be severe and can include bans on purchasing air and rail tickets, renting a car, acquiring a bank loan or credit card, buying property, sending one's children to private schools, or engaging in luxury spending, such as staying in high-end hotels. Those on blacklist are sometimes publicly shamed with their name and photograph advertised on billboards and movie screens. Corporations can also be blacklisted, banning them from bidding on government projects, issuing stocks or bonds, purchasing real estate, and accessing loans. Even local governments and government officials can be blacklisted under the social credit system for dishonest activities, quote-unquote, such as unpaid debts. So it's really a total control, I and mean, it's amazing. And that's what the party is going after, is total control. And the social credit system today is not a single blacklist. It's multiple different kinds of blacklists. It's a, it's a fragmented system, some of which is aimed at really purely actual financial credit issues, like are you good financial credit, some of which is aimed at social credit, at changing social behavior. I think as we see the party perfect this system of total control over their population. It's a really troubling world that we're seeing 
the Chinese Communist Party bring the country into? Yeah, so I think we've all seen that uh, China has become sort of the new adversary after the, the first real one since this fall of the Soviet uh, Union. And, but this is a very different kind of adversary because we're completely intertwined economically. So it's really interesting in this juxtaposition, not only intertwined in terms of purchasing and loaning money and all that, but also uh, Chinese students coming to study in our country and many of them staying. And I think the right wing in this country is worried about the people who stay here and maybe gather new skills to then bring back to China. On the other hand, 90% of them stay. So we're getting their talent, but they're getting information. So it's, it's this, that's another kind of trade, I suppose. It is an important element of this trade. It's remarkable because the U.S. and China are in this technology competition. In fact, we've just seen the Biden administration release new export control regulations on advanced chips to China. They just came out. And human capital is a big component of that. There are a lot of Chinese students that come to the U.S. wants to find ways to keep those students here which it largely has been successful in to date, while cracking down on things like academic espionage and, and intellectual property theft. But in general, the U.S. and Chinese tech ecosystems, particularly in artificial intelligence, are deeply intertwined. And that makes it very challenging because in many ways, in AI, the U.S. and China are, are running against each other in a three-legged race. They are competing against each other, but they are also very closely tied at the hip. And they, they both benefit from this relationship. And now we're beginning to see both sides, actually, both the US and Chinese governments are taking steps to try to recalibrate this relationship in different ways to, to try to benefit themselves more without giving up, to cut off areas that where they might be giving up technology to benefit the other without giving up their own advantages. It's a very challenging uh, competition that they're in. The other thing I wanted to mention about the surveillance technology is that you know, at least some of it is being used even before, I think, imports from China. And that's, for instance, in London is the third most uh, surveilled city in the world in terms of cameras. I don't think they're using the same kind of surveillance about personal choices the way China is, but certainly in terms of cameras. And, and the motivation is not as much about control as it is about safety. You know, there's worrying about crime and terrorism and things like that. So it's a really kind of fine line to thread. How do you protect your people and without repressing them at the same time. And of course, the, the Chinese government would tell you the same thing. They'd say, this isn't about repression. This is about public safety. This is about cracking down on terrorism. So what's the difference? And when I fly back from overseas and land here in Washington and walk through the Dulles Airport in Washington, there was a facial recognition system at the border checkpoint that scans my face. And so what's the difference in these systems and I think what's important to keep in mind is it's not the technology itself that's a problem. There are valuable uses, including for law enforcement, for public safety, for facial recognition technology. What is the problem is how it's used. And one of the main differences in democratic states, like in the United Kingdom, is that use of surveillance technology in London is ultimately being done by a government that is held accountable to the people, to democratically elected government. They have laws and processes. The people have a mechanism to express their views to government if they don't like what the government's doing. And there's an independent media that can criticize the government and people can express their views through that venue or through elements of civil society. We've seen here in the United States, a grassroots movement against facial recognition for law enforcement in public spaces and even bans at the local and state level. 
And I think that speaks to just the, the underlying processes behind how democracies and authoritarian states adopt this technology are fundamentally quite different. And that does lead to differences then in the legitimacy of the outcome, whatever it is. So let's talk about one particular aspect of uh, AI being used for propaganda, and that's deep fakes. And we've, I think most people, I think, have heard about that. But what's amazing is that it's both the visual and the auditory now. And it's not just still photos, it's video. And it's getting harder and harder to tell the difference. You talk about the, an arms race between people creating the deep fakes and, and then people trying to create an antidote, if you will, that can detect deep fakes. And the, the more this arms race goes on, the better the deep fakes become, of course. And uh, yeah, this is, I think, a real challenge that we're facing. And I would imagine that a lot of listeners are familiar with deep fakes now, AI generated video, audio, still images. I think what's remarkable here is the technology is not that old. Deepfake videos are about five years old when they first pop up the internet. AI-generated text is about four years old. And in that time frame, they've gotten much, much better very quickly. And that's one, just like an important thing to keep in mind when we're looking at AI technology. Oftentimes, when new technologies come out, they're not very good at first. And sometimes people's reaction is, this isn't such a big deal. Why are we worried? You fast forward two, three, four years, things could look very different. At the time, four or five years ago, there were experts warning of where we were headed with deepfakes. And now we're here today. The technology is widely proliferated. And for some things like audio, it's pretty sophisticated. And so we're entering a world now, whereas of today, like you hear someone's voice, you pick up the phone, hear the voice of a loved one, that, that may not be that person. It probably is. You're probably not yet the target of an AI deepfake scam, but the technology exists. It's been used in scams. It's been used to defraud companies before. And we're going to see more of that, just like we see robocalls flooding our phones today. Using AI, these tools are going to get more sophisticated. People need to be aware of this. And the technology is only going to get better. And the problem with the detectors, because there are ways of detecting these tools, is that in the long run, as the AI gets better, it just converges towards reality. It converges towards an AI-generated voice that sounds exactly like you or me and is indistinguishable from us. And so in the long run, the detectors will lose and the fakes will win. You gave a really good example from March of last year, a deep fake of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky surfaced online in which he appeared to call on Ukrainians to lay down their arms against the Russian invaders. And of course, he quickly managed to debunk it. I guess it was noticed soon enough. But that's it's pretty scary stuff. And so the question is, how long before deepfakes are used to try to manipulate geopolitical events? The answer is over a year ago. It's already happened. And in that case, it was debunked pretty quickly because the fake was not very good. It was of someone President Zelensky of Ukraine, who was a very public profile, has been very seen. He was saying something that was like the opposite of what you'd expect him to see. He's been very vocal in mobilizing Ukrainians to fight the Russians. For him to like wake up one morning and be like, you know what? Let's just give it up. That's even plausible, right? And he was able to get out very quickly and say, look, this is fake. This isn't true. And the media was very responsible. But there's a lot of space in between for fakes that might seem plausible or what some experts have referred to as the liar's dividend, where if you get caught doing something that's real, people deny it and say, it wasn't me, it was a deep fake. And I, I think we're going to see that as well. 
And as you point out, the antidote, if there is one at all, is in digital watermarks. And hopefully we'll start seeing that being adopted in a widespread way, because that would be also a way of just watermarking the source of any information that it's really coming from a credible place versus not. And what's really interesting about these watermarks is that they can be digitally embedded in such a way that only the people making the recording and the people who are receiving it know that it's there. It can be really a kind of a hidden, what you might see in like a picture of random dots, but in the random dots, there's something embedded that's impossible to really see with your naked eye. It's pretty wild the way that this watermarking works. And people can watermark video, images, audio, they can even watermark text, which I would not have thought was possible, but is doable, where there can be these subtle manipulations that are indistinguishable if you don't know what you're looking for. But the company generating it can then have a detector go back in and and then say, yep, this was made by our tools. The problem is that those watermarking tools are only going to be used by legitimate actors, law-abiding actors who are trying to do the right thing. And these AI tools are not so widely available that there's stuff out there on the internet that doesn't have watermarking if you don't want to do that. And a piece of the solution here is what you were saying, which is also having tools to identify real media, things that are actually recorded out in the world, that also being watermarked, having tools to show the provenance of media, photograph, where was it taken? And what the chain of custody is, if someone you know, takes a photograph of an event, a reporter does, and then is giving that to a media outlet, that they can verify that it's authentic. And there are companies working on this. So I think that it is a, is a technically solvable problem, but it's going to require technology and policy solutions that we need to put in place that's going to create the right incentives for companies to use some of these tools to verify what's real. It's something akin to encryption in a way. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's a way of protecting people and protecting their minds from being polluted, uh, frankly, from disinformation. That's right. And that's so it, it is a, a, maybe a good analogy there that you have these kind of technical solutions and there are ways to do it. But I think we're going to have to come together as a society to put some of these measures in place. Another sensible policy here is something called a bot disclosure law, or what I, my favorite term for this is a Blade Runner law, named after the, the science fiction movie. And California's passed a law along these lines that requires companies, if they're using a bot to communicate with someone, to disclose that it's a bot, that you're not talking to a human, you're talking to an AI. That sounded like science fiction a few years ago. That is very real today now. And that's a sensible regulation that if somebody, if you call in or a company calls you and you're talking to an AI... They should have to disclose that's an AI you're interacting with. That seems like a a reasonable measure to take. Yeah, I don't know if we've gotten there quite yet. At least I don't think so, but maybe I've been fooled already. (laughs) The technology is good enough to convince people. I think it's not 100% adopted yet, in part because the really sophisticated technology is relatively new, the really convincing fakes. But we're going to see over the next couple of years, it's increasingly adopted, some of these AI tools. Something like ChatGPT, when you chat with it, it's pretty convincing. It's pretty smart. Because it's just text. I think when it's interacting with somebody verbally and and visually, then it it gets much more challenging. The visual stuff is hard, and the videos still have tells if you know what you're looking for. The audio is is really good. The audio is basically indistinguishable from reality. I went to a a Boston-based AI audio-generated startup called Modulate. 
and they do something called voice skins, which sounds creepier than it really is. So in like the gaming world, people refer to skins as a an avatar, a character that you could put on your character in clothing and, and an outfit, and they could do this with voice. And so they could do real-time voice-to-voice translation. So while you are speaking, it translates your voice in effectively instantaneously into somebody else's voice. And I demoed this technology, put on a headset, listened to it, and it loops the audio. It does it quicker than your brain can recognize the, the distinction. It's in a matter of milliseconds. So it sounds the same, but it's somebody else's voice coming out when you're talking. And it was just a really interesting experience to me, wild, and I think a sense of how really amazing and there's opportunities here, but also there are some you know troubling possibilities too, the technology is. Yeah, and you point out that it's, it swaps out the vocal cords, so to speak, but not the intonation or the inflection. So th- that's one way you can tell the difference. So th- that would require a trained actor, I think, to match that. So everyone has, so this is fascinating, and I didn't know really much about any of this until digging into this. So there's a number of different elements of a person's speech. There's your vocal cords. There's like the sound, the timbre that your voice makes. And then there's your manner of speaking, the pauses, the words you use, the kind of the, the verbal kind of ticks that, that we all have and when we speak. And what it does is just match the vocal cords, which is really powerful because that's one of the things that people can't do. With training, you could learn to match the way that other people speak. You think about like Barack Obama has both a distinctive voice, but also a very distinctive way of talking. He has these kind of like long pauses. A trained actor could learn to mimic the way that he talks, but not the vocal cords. And the AI can now do that. So the late night comedians aren't going to lose their jobs yet when they imitate people. Yeah, not yet. So let's shift now to talking about the military uses of AI. And here we go from the horrifying reality of repressive uses already underway to a terrifying future. But with war, it's only in its infancy that uh, it's starting, but there's a lot further to go. And and the implications are pretty horrifying. I noticed in your book, you reference uh, sci-fi movies quite a bit. And of course, that's probably a big source of what people think about AI warfare. So I work at a think tank on a regular basis, on a daily basis. And a lot of the work that we do is dry analytic reports for people in government. But writing for a mass market, these popular culture touchstones are out there for AI, the movies and books that people have seen and read. And so I think it can be helpful to either be a comparison or contrast between what's actually happening underway. But we've seen in the military space that this technology is already being adopted by militaries. The war in Ukraine in particular has been a real accelerant for adopting AI on both sides. In fact, it was just a report that very recently came out, it reported in New Scientist in Forbes by David Hambling about fully autonomous weapons being used for the first time in Ukraine, AI-powered drones that could go out and search for their own targets and then attack them all on their own. It's not, frankly, a surprise. I think we're going to see more of these kinds of applications in certainly the months ahead. And if the war continues to drag on, we'll continue to see more innovation in AI and then counter AI technology, finding ways to defeat and trick AI systems. I don't think I had realized that the line had already been crossed in terms of fully autonomous drones, for instance. This is very new reporting. And certainly up until recently, we've seen some allegations, some reports in Ukraine, many of which I didn't personally find super credible. But we've seen drones used, at least as of a year ago, 
that use AI image classifiers, so have sort of the technology on board the drone to identify objects. And David Hambling's recently reporting that the Saker Scout drone has a fully autonomous capability. I think remains to be seen. We'll see, we'll get more information about what's happening on the front. But it's not surprising because the technology certainly enables it today. And one of the things you point to is the idea of swarming, that there could be a much higher number of autonomous or even semi-autonomous weapons, let's say aerial weapons, all attacking at the same time in a way that humans couldn't because they would not be able to coordinate among themselves and, and prevent friendly fire. But with the automated system, they can. And so it would be incredibly difficult to defend against that. That's right. Right now, we're seeing both sides in Ukraine use groups of drones together, what maybe the multi-speaker you call stacks of drones, several drones operating at different levels, some of different kinds of drones, maybe a high altitude one doing wide area surveillance, small quadcopters coming in closer to ground troops and coordinating, but people coordinating their activity. And the next evolution here is what you're talking about is swarming where the drones are autonomously coordinating their activity and the human tells the swarm to go conduct a task. And then it does it all on its own. The drones operating as part of a team. And that's been demonstrated in labs. The technology exists. And we're going to see it probably in the next few years incorporated into militaries as well. And part of that is made possible through what's called machine learning, which is a kind of intelligence that's different and in some ways beyond human intelligence, it seems to work really well for well-defined games like chess or Go. It even seems to work for a game like poker, and poker is not a pure strategy, strategy plus unpredictability of your opponent. But you, you mentioned that there's a kind of brittleness to machine learning. We don't fully understand how it works. We know how it's set up, but the results can be a complete mystery. I know even in something like chess or go, the computer plays a move that seems totally mind-boggling to, to a grandmaster or even a world champion. That's right. So what's different about this current wave of AI and the deep learning revolution that started back in 2012 is it uses machine learning where algorithms are trained on data. So rather than following a set of rules written down by people about how to perform, the machine is trained on data and then it learns certain behaviors. So AlphaGo, for example, that played that plays the Chinese strategy game Go and that beat the best humans at Go several years ago, rather than following a set of rules that people wrote down about how to play, it was just trained on millions of moves of Go. And then it, it learned on its own how what sort of a good move looked like. And then by playing against itself, it was actually able to reach superhuman levels of performance. And the problem, with, it's a really powerful technique, machine learning, we're seeing it used across a whole wide range of applications. The problem is because it's not following a set of rules written down by people, we do get surprising behaviors, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in ways that can mean that the machine can do better than humans could. We're seeing that in chess where AlphaZero, one of the chess versions of, of this kind of technology, is inventing new opening moves in chess that human grandmasters have never come up with. And humans are then learning from this machine, but also can be surprising in bad ways. And there are accidents with these systems. We've seen them, for example, with self-driving cars having accidents. And in the military space, this is, of course, really troubling because the consequences of an accident could be really serious. You mentioned about self-driving cars, but those are supposed to be out by now, and they're not because I, I think that the brittleness of machine learning is much more profoundly a problem than I think people 
expected. And it seems like it's always being pushed off and pushed off that we don't really understand how these mistakes are happening. You, you have some examples in your book of just putting a sticker on something and, and causing the uh, computer to not just misidentify, but to grossly misidentify it. You know, so a, a chicken could look like a book to the computer. It could be anything. And we don't understand why that is, but certainly en enemies can do that to try to camouflage their vulnerable facilities from the air. That's right. And there's a, a host of challenge, challenge problems really with these AI systems and vulnerabilities that they have. So it's AI is not magic. It has problems. One of the problems is that these systems can often be easily manipulated. And this is really across the board for AI systems, not just image classifiers, but also tech systems like ChatGPT. Can, people can find ways around their safeguards to jailbreak the system to get around some of the safeguards. And that's a, a persistent problem. I think it's unclear how much that is going to be something that the AI community is able to improve upon as the systems become more capable, or these become these like just, it remains this really fundamental problem. So far, for the most advanced systems, they still have a lot of these vulnerabilities, and it's a real challenge. So let's talk a bit more about poker. I was really uh, amazed to hear that it's not just pure strategy games where AI can be used, but also poker, which is a much better analogy for war because it involves uncertainty, luck, bluffing, changeable stakes. It's very different from chess, and yet computers can do very well against human poker experts. Yeah, in fact, the AI systems have, have just absolutely crushed the best human poker players. There was a contest several years ago where some of the top human poker players in the world went head-to-head -head against an AI system for multiple days of uh, competition, and the AI won very handily. And what's interesting about poker from a problem standpoint is in games like chess or Go, all of the information is visible to both sides. You can look at the chessboard and all of the information that you need to know is right there on the chessboard. But it's not true in poker. There's a lot of hidden information. What's in your cards, but you don't know what's in your opponent's cards. And so that introduces a really new difficult dynamic to the game. It opens up the sort of game space of possibilities in a huge way. But it turns out that if you program an AI to be really good at probability, it can beat the best human poker players in the world one of the things that's fascinating to me is it's not just that the AI system is better, but that it plays differently than humans. And this comes across in all of these different games in chess and Go and computer game, um, strategy games like StarCraft and Dota 2, where there are these sort of simulated computer battles that are being played out. Where the AI system is not just better, it's different. They often make more finely calibrated measurements of risk. The in, in poker, the AI poker agents, their betting swings wildly. They make bets that humans would think of as bad bets, but it works out for the AI because they know when to use them effectively. And so there's lots of ways where the AI has, has really fundamental advantages over humans that also is going to have big implications for warfare. And that's not a, even including the fact that the computer has a perfect poker face. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's really something just you would think if it were human playing that way, you would think they were crazy. You just, it was so unpredictable. 
That's right. And one of the things that's quite interesting here is that the ability to take emotion out of the equation is an advantage for the machines. And this really comes out in a big way in poker, where even the most uh, steely-eyed human poker players, they got ice in their veins. When there's a big pot, their blood pressure is going to go up, their heart rate's going to go up. There's adrenaline on the line, right? They're invested in that. And the computer just doesn't care, right? It's not emotionally invested in the outcome. And that does actually affect performance. And of course, in, in war, that's true to a much higher degree. Uh, your, your life is on the line. And so that advantage is going to be significant for AI. And also the human player can't use the psychology against the computer by, let's say, faking their emotional reaction. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So in addition to laying out the, uh, the unfolding reality of AI, uh, AI-driven repression and war, you also delve into the four areas or, or battlegrounds, as you put it, in the race to, de- to develop these powerful tools, uh, data, computing hardware or compute, talent, and institutions. So that's another, I think, big aspect of your book is ferreting out all those different aspects of, the, of this race. So l- let's talk about how each of those contribute and, and how the capacities of the U.S. versus China stack up in each of these areas. Absolutely. One of the things I wanted to explore in the book is how is AI changing global power, not just in the sense of who will win, but what is it? how is AI changing the key elements of power? What are the things that countries need to be competing in? And ended up concluding it was these four kind of key areas of competition. On data, it's a relative level playing field, to be honest. Both the US and China are going to have access to large amounts of data. What's going to matter more is how they use that data effectively. For computing hardware, computer chips, it's different. The US has a huge advantage in that all of the most advanced chips in the world are made using technology from the United States and some key U.S. allies, Japan and the Netherlands. And those three countries actually completely control the market for the most advanced chip-making equipment. And they've now been able to use that to regulate who can get access to the most advanced AI chips. They don't really need to train these really powerful AI models. You need a lot of these really advanced computer chips. The estimate for GPT-4, OpenAI's current state-of-the-art system, is that it used around 20,000 of the most state-of-the-art chips today. So that's like that's a lot of computing hardware, and that's become a domain of geopolitical competition where the U.S. has cut off China's access to these chips. How does Taiwan figure in here? So Taiwan is, in some ways, the Saudi Arabia of computing hardware. It is this geopolitical fulcrum in this competition where 90% of the most advanced chips in the world are made in Taiwan. Now, that sounds like a bad thing for the United States, given that Taiwan is an island 100 miles off the coast of China, that the Chinese Communist Party has pledged to absorb by force if necessary. But this chip-making equipment that Taiwan uses relies on U.S. technology and technology from Japan and the Netherlands. And so the U.S. has actually told Taiwan that If there's a Chinese chip-making company that sends them designs to then manufacture a chip in Taiwan that's going back to China, Taiwan can't do that if it's above a certain performance threshold that the U.S. is going to say no, which is is remarkable that the U.S. put in place these extraterritorial unilateral controls on this technology that's actually made outside of the United States, but it is, for the moment at least, effective. So it seems as long as Taiwan has a near monopoly on the production of these chips, they're in danger. 
So it was a danger, quite honestly, in, in either case. Um, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party has made clear in Xi Jinping, the Chinese General Secretary has made clear that they want to absorb Taiwan. Their vision is that Taiwan is a breakaway province and they want to uh, bring it back under the fold. Taiwan is, of course, a, a thriving independent democracy. And China has engaged in a number of military exercises around Taiwan. They've been clear that they are building up the military potential to invade Taiwan and take it by force if necessary. That's their official line. They've, they've, they've said that. And so the threat to Taiwan is serious. It's one that the United States is certainly, as a, as a close partner to Taiwan, is taking very seriously from a military standpoint. What about talent? How does that compare in, between China and the United States? There is a fierce competition for global talent in AI, and leading AI companies are competing for some of the top engineers in the world. China produces more of top AI scientists than any other country in the world. But here's the thing. They don't stay in China. They leave China and they come to the United States for graduate studies because the best universities are here in the U.S. And then they tend to stay here after graduation. And in fact, 90%, you mentioned this at the start of the discussion here, 90% of Chinese undergrads who come to the U.S. for graduate studies in computer science stay in the U.S. after graduation. And they work in U.S. businesses, at tech companies and startups. And so that's a huge brain gain for the United States and a brain drain for China. And that's a major advantage that the U.S. has in this competition for global talent. So we're really a, a magnet for foreign students, not just Chinese, also Indian and other places. And yet we don't seem to be able to produce that many homegrown American students at that level. And we have some, of course, but we seem to really need foreign students which is really interesting. I'm not sure what the reason for that is. We have all this openness, but maybe, I don't know, for lack of a better word, not as many disciplined students. I certainly think there's more that we can do internal to the U.S. in terms of improving our education system, making college more accessible, improving STEM education you know, for science, technology, engineering, and math for students, certainly at the K-12 through level and at the university and postgraduate level, and, and increasing just the, the pool of talented students here in the United States who are in a position where they can go on to some of these fields. But I think it's also the case that the tech sector in the United States is so vibrant and there's such a demand, which is great, that it's good that it's outstripping capacity here. I mean, we want to raise capacity, but it's good that we're able to be a draw for global talent and bring in those PhD engineers and scientists from not just China, but from India and elsewhere, bring them to the United States. That's a huge advantage for the U.S. Now, right now, government regulation is stopping that from happening because we have barriers to high-skilled immigration. And so if you're an um, Indian with a PhD in engineering and you want to come to the United States, it's incredibly hard to get a visa, which is terrible strategically for the United States. We should want to bring that talent in. Um, because it's a major advantage for us. So it sounds like you're saying that the the price of having a certain amount of technological leakage, you know, by let's say Chinese students going back to China, or some of the leakage through technology theft, things like that, is is in a way worth it on balance because we're getting so much more input into the of the talent pool. That's right. We need to be strategic here. That a knee jerk reaction of just trying to cut off any U.S. tech or any U.S. scientific knowledge going to China could be counterproductive because there are ways in which the U.S. benefits disproportionately from these talent flows. And we don't want to cut that off. 
the way to really address that is through better investigations, better visa screening, to cut down on students that might be high risk and have indicators of being at high risk for intellectual property theft or academic espionage, and improving research security here in the U.S. But we don't want to do it in a way that cuts off these talent flows. And another point you make in the book is that one reason maybe why China doesn't have the kind of uh, higher education that we do in these areas is that the culture, as it's promoted by the government in China, squelches creativity. And so it's, there's a kind of a lack of openness has a consequence intellectually. China's been walking this fine line in the last 20 years of trying to have have their cake and eat it too, having an openness in terms of scientific innovation and having a vibrant commercial ecosystem and world-class technology companies, but also maintaining political control. And a lot of people said it couldn't be done. The Chinese Communist Party has done it. I think whether they're able to continue maintaining that balance remains to be seen because under Xi's leadership, Xi Jinping, the party has really instituted a, a pretty serious crackdown on Chinese tech firms in the last several years, where we've seen um, them them shift that balance in just the recent years towards more political control and be willing to sacrifice technology leadership, economic growth, not just in the tech sector and other areas as well, where we're seeing the party really emphasize social and political control at the expense of growth. And so I think we'll see if they can continue to maintain that. But so far, The reality in China has been that you can have people that are innovative, that are coming with really world-class technologies, while also not being free. And they've been able to do both. And I think that's certainly very troubling from the standpoint of global freedom and this balance between authoritarian states and democracies. And and the last area you talk about is institutions. So are we talking about just universities or we're talking about other institutions as well? Institutions in a very broad sense, meaning the organizations that are needed to take these raw inputs of data, computing hardware, and human talent and turn them into useful applications. So to go back to the military space, to take the example of aircraft technology. Aircraft was invented here in the United States, but by the time you get to World War II, aircraft technology has spread among all of the great powers at the time. And The key question for militaries was, what do you do with an airplane? How do you use airplanes most effectively? The British were actually first experiment with carrier aviation, with airplanes coming off of ships. But they fell behind the United States and Japan in the run-up to World War II, not because they didn't have access to the technology, but because of internal bureaucratic and cultural squabbles within the British military that held back their development. And so having institutions that are able to flexibly, adaptively bring in this new technology, find new ways of using it are really important. We've seen in the commercial space now. AI technology is pretty widely available. What's going to matter most for companies is figuring out how do you use AI in a way that's going to give them some kind of market advantage. And we're going to see some companies really thrive and others fail at that. And that's the same globally in the competition between nations. You know, one of the things that we, that we really haven't touched on very much yet and probably won't have time to is the kind of the different actors involved between government and private industry. And it's, it, it gets complicated. There's an example of Google that had a, a project, Maven, that came onto some controversy from within the, its own company that there were many programmers within Google that did not want to be contributing to a military effort. And they eventually pulled out. 
That's right. Google sent shockwaves through Washington several years ago when they announced they were not going to renew their work on the DOD, the Defense Department's flagship AI project called Project Maven, which was using AI to process images and drone video feeds. And when this came out publicly, that Google was working with the Defense Department, a number of Google scientists said, we don't want to be working with the military. And Google eventually backed out of the work. Now, this really, I think, raised a huge alarm in the national security community because they were worried that they'd be locked out of a game-changing technology that's coming out of the commercial space. AI is not coming out of secret defense labs. It's coming out of commercial companies like Google and Amazon and Microsoft and others. Now, what was interesting was when Google did this, the CEOs of Microsoft and Amazon came out and said, we are going to work with the US government, including the military, they had employees also protesting and writing open letters. And they said, look, we're gonna work with the government and here's why. We're gonna support, we're, an, we're American companies, we have a democratically elected government, people don't like what the government's doing, there's a political process for doing that, but it's not for companies to decide. And so we're gonna support the government and what the government's doing. And so ultimately the military, US military has been able to access this technology I think these debates are are healthy about how should we be using AI in the military space. But it does speak to, I think, this interesting dynamic where it's really the private sector and the commercial space that's leading the technology. We're almost out of time. So I want to just quote from your book toward the end of the book, a general kind of synopsis about AI, which I think is quite eloquent. You said it is a fallacy to think that the pinnacle of intelligence is a human-like form of cognition or even that the natural trajectory of AI is toward intelligence that is more human-like. In fact, the history of AI to date suggests that machine intelligence is often very inhuman, an alien form of, of intelligence. As AI advances, it may spark a Copernican revolution in how we think about intelligence, with humans being only one type of intelligence in a vast, multidimensional space of all possible intelligences. More advanced forms of AI may lead to a Cambrian explosion of intelligence, producing a diverse array of intelligent systems with many different forms of cognition. So that's really a mouthful, but it really, I think, speaks to just the awesomeness of this whole area. Thank you. I, I think that's a really important point that I want people to understand, which is that even though if you go chat with ChatGPT online, it, it sounds like a human because it's trained on text generated by people. So it's been trained to basically imitate people. But what's going on under the hood is not at all like how human brains function. And it's a fundamentally alien form of intelligence that is powerful. And it's not at all clear that what we're building is converging towards human-like intelligence, that right now we have sort of one real existence proof for really powerful general purpose intelligence systems. It's humans. But that doesn't mean that what we're building is going to be the same as humans, even if it's more powerful and general purpose. And so I think that's something we want to be mindful of when we're thinking about using the technology and be be wary of it and be cautious because the systems can be powerful and also be quite different, think differently than us. And I think it's something we want to keep in mind when we're interacting with it. On that note, I think we've come to the end of, of the interview. So Paul Shari the Executive Vice President and Director of Studies at the Center for New American Security and the author of Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. 
please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.